Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be reading in Psalm 124, verses 1 through 8. That's on page 297 and 298 in the Blue Bibles. And I'd just like to remind you that if you need a Bible, please feel free to take one. They're our gift to you. That's Psalm 124, 1 through 8. A song of ascent of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Janae. Let's pray together. God, this psalm reminds us that you are our defense. God, not only theoretically, not somewhere off in the distance, but you, we have record after record, story after story of the times that you have come to our aid, rescued us, defended us, brought us out of the pit, saved us from snares and jaws of death. Lord, we thank you for these instances. And Lord, even as this is true, we recognize and acknowledge that so often we're fearful and we are doubting when facing different trials and and different struggles with sin. We, we forget your great power. And so, Lord, our prayer as we ponder this psalm to this morning would be that you would remind us of who you are, that you would remind us that you are truly God and that you are truly God Almighty and that there is nothing that you have not done and there is nothing that you would not do for your people and so, Lord, we, we praise you and we honor you uh, this morning as you remind us of these things and call us to walk in higher levels of faith and belief and trust in your hand and your, the, the shield that the Bible tells us that you are around us, the, the fact that you are our glory, that you are the lifter of our head even in the midst of despair. So we thank you for this. God, I pray that you would... God, do a cleansing work in me, a purifying work that that my tongue would be yielded to you, my thoughts, my heart would be yielded to you to speak in a way that pleases you, in a way that accurately portrays what you have said, Lord, that I would not, by my own fallenness, in any way pollute uh, what you have said to your people, but Lord, that you would seize control of me, that I would speak uh, God is as an oracle of God and God only. And I thank you for all this. I ask it all in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So we are going through these songs of ascent. We are, after today, we'll be one-third of the way through of these fantastic psalms, these beautiful pictures that we have in the Word that they 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 themselves literally paint this incredible picture of us 
journeying. We've talked about that over and over again, but I want to just remind you that that these songs, these 15 psalms, Psalm 120 to 134, were sung as, as pilgrims who were commanded by God to appear before him three times a year in Jerusalem, that they, they sang these songs on their way. They're called songs of ascent because they were journeying up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is an elevated place, and, and, and the, the temple itself was on Mount Zion, and as they were going up, they sang these songs. So as we're going through these songs of ascent, we, we've come to this place on our journey where the Jews would pause for a moment and they would rejoice in the revealed saving power of God. They would stand amazed at the record, their history of what God has done and just be in amazement. And, and if you've been here for these few weeks, salvation has not been far from the minds uh, of these people that are on this journey, they hasn't been far from their minds at all. They've, they've thought about God as a savior, God as a deliverer over and over. In fact, if you'll recall, several weeks ago, about a month ago now, when we began in Psalm 120, the opening verse, they sang, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. We moved on to Psalm 121, where they recognized their help and their keeper was God. Remember, they said, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. In Psalm 122, they rejoiced in the security, the literally the salvation that was found within the walls of Jerusalem. In 123, which we talked about last week, they cried out at the end of the psalm, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. They were looking to the Lord to be uh, the hand of salvation for them. But now they've, they look back, not, they're not looking to the future. They, they're looking back to specific instances of the Lord's rescue in their lives. Verse one said, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, Let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us. Ginger and I, last week, we watched a six-part documentary on the events of 9-11. Hard to believe that was 20 years ago. But we watched this documentary, and in this documentary, they interviewed a lot of people who were rescued, who survived that the, the, the horrible events of that day. And and in that, um, the, these people were rescued from, say, the World Trade Center when everything seemed lost. But because of the actions of a single brave firefighter or maybe just an isolated civilian, people were rescued. And the survivors who were being interviewed in this documentary, they, every one of them said things like, they showed up at just the right time. Or they would say, I was lucky that they even heard me. Or they would say, I was lost in the fire and the smoke. And they showed me how to get out. And and Ginger and I, you know, we thought this would be a really dark and depressing thing. But hearing these stories was actually really, really inspiring. And although, of course, we know that God's sovereign hand was at work in every one of those rescues, everyone that made it out that day, in an earthly sense, and only in an earthly sense, every instance of those rescues was a case of two people meeting by what seemed to be chance. And, and, and we might just, just 
say they, they just met by chance at the right time, that we might call it fortune or luck. But what I want you to see what David is saying in this passage. David is not writing in this psalm about a heavenly firefighter that we can pick up the phone and call 911, who, who will call on, who we can call on, who will come and do a search and rescue, who, who goes out to try to find us through all the mess of our lives and rescue us just in the nick of time, in the time of crisis. But he's picturing God as more of a personal bodyguard. A personal guard, bodyguard who's right there, who's always on duty, who is ever vigilant, who is armed, who is ready to save his people. This is what it's meant that when he says the Lord was on their side. He was their support. He was their hope in a spiritual sense for sure. But because of his covenant with them, God was, what David's trying to picture for us is that God was positionally and he was practically by their side. Psalm 121 and Psalm 124, which we're looking at today, are very, very similar in in certain ways. Psalm 121 looks forward in hope to a God who keeps Israel, the God who does not sleep. And they look to him as a promise of future deliverance when he is needed. But Psalm 124 is not a song about future deliverance as much as it is a testimony of deliverances that have been granted. It shows that God, who they look to, who they cast their eyes to the hills, it shows that that God has kept his promise to Israel. And he's kept them. He's he's watched over them. He's protected them. Between verses 1 and 2, I love this element in this psalm. Between verses 1 and 2, the song pauses to allow for greater emphasis, to let you really stop and think about what's being said, and to rouse the congregation of Israel's memory. Imagine this, the the song leader is calling the singers who are singing to think about what they're singing, to, to come to attention and to remember what God has done. Let's look at it again. Verse one, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, he does not complete his sentence, but he says, let Israel now say, hey, Israel, pay attention. Remember, stir yourself up to memory. Remember this. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, he's wanting them to see how much strength that we as the people of God receive by remembering all the kinds of deliverances that we have received from the Lord's hand. Psalm 143, verse 5, David later will say, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. This is a good thing to think about what God has done. What? Let me ask you a question. A cold shiver should go down your spine when I ask you this question. What could have happened if the Lord had left you? Think about the terrible possibility. What could have happened if the Lord had just left you in your sin? What if He had abandoned you that time you were sick? What about that time you were afraid? That time you were alone? What if he disappeared? But that's not your testimony, is it? Your testimony is that he has been faithful. That he hasn't abandoned you. That he hasn't left. Consider that question for just the 
briefest of moments. What if the Lord had not been on my side? See, we spend a lot of time grumbling about our current status instead of remembering what the Lord has done in similar circumstances, maybe long ago. We, we know instinctively, from earliest childhood, instinctively we know how to complain. But as people who are now following Christ, we're called to, to learn a new set of skills. We're called to learn to remember and to worship because of what we remember. Because this is the basis of all of our memory. This is it. You want to hear it? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God has not changed. His mercy, the Bible says, endures forever and ever. The deliverance that he brought about for you yesterday is his promise to you of salvation today. And so I want you to just today to put his past goodness on the front burner of your mind, to trust his promises, to pause and to remember and ask him to do it for you again. In the Israelites' case, they could remember many times when the Lord was on their side and save them when people rose up against them. They remembered when Pharaoh had had them in captivity and slavery doing his bidding. They remembered when the Amalekites made war with them as they traveled through, to, uh, through the desert to the promised land. They remembered how David had to face the, the Philistine bully Goliath. They, they remembered how he had run from wicked King Saul. But in every single case, all of those cases, if you read the Old Testament account of those stories, all of them seemed absolutely insurmountable. Like there was no hope, that there was no rescue, that there was no way out. But in every case, God brought a miraculous deliverance. Do you remember? Pharaoh faced plague after plague after plague until his firstborn son was struck down. The Amalekites were defeated when Moses simply raised his staff above them. David defeated Goliath with a shepherd's sling. King Saul eventually went mad and took his own life on the battlefield, never laying a scratch on David. And these are the things that the Israelites were thinking of as as they were singing there in the desert on their way to Jerusalem. And if you just think about it, If you just pause long enough to think about it, if you are truly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have similar stories where God has rescued you. Amen. Amen. Some of you literally might be scratching your head and you say, where, where, when did this happen? How do you know that I have such stories? Well, I qualified it. I said, if you're truly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, let me remind you that most of all, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you have the cross. It's the ultimate symbol of the victory that God has wrought on your behalf. Because of the cross, every single threat to your security has been forever defeated. Now, not even death, not even death itself can harm you because of the cross. You not only have the promise of some coming salvation, Psalm 121, but you are living in the reality that you've already been saved. 
That's a glorious thing. David goes on, verse 2, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Joseph Carl was a, a writer in Puritan times, and in describing the ugliness and the violence of the wicked in, that this passage portrays, he said this. This is great. He said, Every man that eateth must also swallow, but a glutton is rather a swallower than an eater. He throws his meat whole down his throat and eats, as we may say, without chewing. What a vivid depiction of what David is trying to say here. He's saying that outside of the intervention of God, that his enemies would have gobbled him alive and whole, just swallowed him up without even taking time to chew. Many wild animals swallow their prey alive, not waiting for the life to be out of it. And David saw the enemies of God and his people as devouring beasts. And he had good reason. Remember what Goliath said to him? Do you remember? He's facing Goliath in the valley, and Goliath says, Come to me, you little punk. That's my version. And I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. That's what he said. He's he's literally talking about him being devoured. But we all know how that story ended, don't we? The picture on display here can be also kind of an image of being buried alive in the ground or in a grave or in the sea or by an earthquake. But what I want you to see, this is the point. I'm not giving you a lecture on how to be devoured. What I want you to see is that regardless of what the picture is being displayed here, God's revealed power is still greater than any threats to devour us by the unjust and the cruel. It's still greater. Let me demonstrate a beautiful illustration of the point I'm trying to make. Moses and Pharaoh, uh, Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh to, to issue God's demand, let my people go. And this is what happens. Exodus 7.10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his serpents, and voila, it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they and the magicians of Egypt also did the same thing by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. Man, what a bummer that must have been, huh? You would have thought that you had the the final word. You throw down that stick, it becomes a snake, and you look at Pharaoh and say, voila, baby, you know. And uh, and then they says, big deal. He calls his guys these these demonically inspired occultists, and they throw down their their sticks. They do the same thing. But that's not that's not the big point of this story. This is. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Doesn't that just give you chills? Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Listen to me. God is able to swallow up any serpents that his enemies may produce by any power they use because he is stronger than his enemies. He is wiser than his enemies. He is more determined than his enemies. God never backs down. And he is able to bring to pass whatever he has determined for our good. God will swallow up that which your enemy produces. Some enemies may be strong. Some enemies may be wise. Some enemies may be determined. Some enemies may even be able to impose their will on their subjects. 
But God is wise and strong and determined and able to impose his will to the superlative. No one does it better than God. And this guarantees his victory in every single battle that he undertakes. And this applies no matter what form the enemy takes. No matter what battle you find yourself enmeshed in today, it doesn't matter what the, what the enemy looks like. It matters how strong the God is. And our God is strong. Our God is wise. Our God is determined. And our God is able to accomplish what he has purposed. Sinful man's hungry ravings are no match for God. doesn't matter whether, like I said, whatever form they take, whether it's the sin and persecution of another, the harassment of the devil, the pressure and hostility of the world, our own internal desires and cravings, sins, hungry ravings are no match for God. Psalms 46.6, I love this. It says, the nations rage. This picture of the nations shaking their fist at God. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. But then almost as, a, as an afterthought, it says, he, meaning God, utters his voice, and the earth melts. He's not worried at all about the raging nations and the tottering earth because he utters his, his, his voice and, and sets everything in the right order. After this mention of God's protection against wild beasts, David uses another violent image, that of a flood. He says in verse 4, then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. It's been observed that a flood is more destructive than a fire. Imagine that. So you have a fire in your house, and you know you call the fireman, they spray water on it, and it extinguishes the fire. But a flood, once a flood begins, and, and the, the uh, waters are rushing and raging, you can't stop that with anything. It's just got to run its course. That's just what happens. Ginger's uh, parents, uh, when she was younger, bought a house on the Brazos River, and the house is probably 200, 250 yards from the, from the bank of the river. And when you look at the house, it's on these giant stilts, like, you know, 10 or 12 foot stilts. And I brought a friend out there one time. He said, what on earth is that house so high? I mean, the river's way down there. Well, because on many occasions, we've had the river come right up to the stairs. We had to prepare for a flood so that the house wouldn't be swept away uh, when the flood came. Floods are terrible. They're dangerous. And there's two kinds of, uh, uh, two types of danger that are represented by biblical floods. So we talked about the wild beasts that swallow alive, that, that, you know, just gobble up alive. Well, the children of Israel thought that they would be swallowed by the Red Sea when Pharaoh's army was bearing down on them. But God's grace, you know the story, you've seen the movie. God's grace split the Red Sea open and, and uh, Israel was able to have a pathway through the sea and, and God's enemies, Pharaoh's army, was drowned. There are floods that the enemy is going to try to press you into, things that are overwhelming, things that you have no power against, that, that he'll try to press you into. He wants to overcome you and drown you. But your confidence should remain in the sea-splitting God that's going to make a way for you. Even when your path seems to be blocked, the obstacle in front of you is an angry sea. God is able to make a way. If you read through the Old Testament, the crossing of the Red Sea was the ultimate symbol 
the ultimate old covenant symbol of God's rescuing power, referenced over and over again throughout the duration of the Old Testament. And it shouldn't be forgotten by us either, because the God of the Old Testament is our God. But our symbol that we have in our in the covenant that we're under is far superior. Again, the cross makes a way for us through the seas of sin, through the sea of doubt, through the sea of unbelief. The blood of Jesus provides the ultimate escape and and it drowns our enemies. But there's another kind of flood. We're not just the kind of flood where the enemy presses us into. There's another kind of flood, the flood of sin that incurs God's wrath. David depicts a flood that is rising in this, in this imagery of Psalm 124. He predicts this flood that, or depicts this flood that's rising. At first, you look around and the water's coming up and you wonder, oh my gosh, what kind of stuff am I going to lose? What is this going to cost me? But then the progression of thought with David continues until he says that the raging waters would have gone over them. He's trying to say, if this had kept up, if God had not intervened, we would have drowned. And I thought about that picture that David paints, and I thought, this is just a picture of sin, isn't it? Just a picture of how sin works. When you first notice the water is kind of trickling in, First, you don't even care. You're just having fun day at the lake or the river. And then you notice that the water starts trickling in and you begin to wonder, oh my goodness, what's this going to cost me? What am I going to lose here? At first, you may make awkward excuses to your spouse about where you've been. But the waters keep rising and soon she discovers your search history or a text message and you drown. You go under. At first, you have to call your boss and tell him again, I'm sick, I can't make it to work today. Next, you have red and blue lights behind you and you're facing DWI charges, or worse yet, you've run over a kid with your car. Now, obviously, obviously, these are extreme examples. I'm not suggesting that everyone is going to have an affair or, or you know, kill some kid with their car in a drunken stupor. It's not what I'm saying, but I want you to see that in those larger examples is the nature of all sin. Surely everyone in a, every one of us in here has experienced the pain of a lie that keeps growing and growing and growing, either told by us or perpetrated against us. The waters rise, and sooner or later, they're over our head, and we're drowned. The life goes out of us. The point remains, these are extreme examples, but the point remains, sin is a rising tide that will eventually drown you, except for grace. In Genesis 6 through 9, God judges the wickedness and the sin of the entire world. How does he do it? With a giant flood, a giant worldwide flood. And virtually all life on earth is extinguished except for eight souls and all the animal specimens on board that are preserved in the ark that was designed by God. The ark, don't just look at it as a big wooden boat in an Old Testament story that we slap on people's nursery walls. Don't you think that's the funniest thing that we decorate kids' rooms with a, with a, a symbol of God's wrath being poured out on the whole world? It always struck me as kind of funny. 
We always put the cute little giraffes and elephants sticking their heads out of the boat, but we don't put the drowning sinners like all around in the, in the water. The ark, what I want you to see is the ark represents God's sovereign electing grace. The ark is a symbol of God's salvation and your safety, that in a world where all of us should be drowned, that all of us should be consumed, the ark shows us that God has chosen his people and lifted them above the flood. Above the flood that, that, that was righteously incurred because of God's wrath, there's that flood that the Lord lifts us over. If you want to survive the floods of your sin that I just described, if you want to dis- uh, survive the depravity of this fallen world, get in the ark. And Jesus is the ark. Believe in him. Trust him. Obey him. Stop living for the passing pleasure of sin for a passing season. It soon ends and it promises to end in sadness and despair and eternal death. But Christ died. The good news is Christ died to be an ark of safety so that you don't have to perish. If it hadn't been the Lord that was on your side, there would be no ark. The Red Sea would have long ago splashed down on your head and destroyed you. But as it is, God has made a way through the sea and he has carried you over the flood. But your enemies don't always appear as violent predators or overwhelming floods. Sometimes they appear with even greater subtlety. Verse 6, Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth, We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. The first description that uh, of the devil that we have in Scripture is when he appeared in the form of a servant, of a serpent, not a servant, in the form of a serpent in the Garden of Eden to deceive the woman, and he, he appeared to deceive her and to plunge her and her husband and all their heirs into sin and shame and condemnation and death. This is what the Bible says in the King James Version. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now when you look at a a snake, which most of you would prefer never to look at a snake, but if you look at a snake, you see that they have retained that subtlety. They slither instead of running. They hiss instead of roaring. They sneak up on their prey, and as we described earlier, they swallow them alive. And and the, the imagery that David's painting here is that someone, some guy out in the forest hunting birds. Now, when you're hunting birds, it, it requires subtlety. I love to go dove hunting, for example, and it requires subtlety. When you're, when you're hunting for birds, you sit very still. You move quietly. You set decoys up, and you make calls in order to entice the bird to come close. You're trying to deceive a bird into coming close enough so that you can throw a net over him or shoot him with a shotgun or an arrow, depending on the bird. Surely, you can see there's some parallels here, right? Throughout my life, and I'm assuming yours as well, the enemy has tried all kinds of baits and lures 
and decoys to keep me from seeing the destructive nature of my own sin. A bait or a lure or a decoy only shows me the pleasurable element of my sin, never the destructive element. The devil has never been nice enough to me to show me exactly what the end result of my sin would be, only what the immediate benefit would be of pleasure. He, he's, he's not had to come to me often, the devil that is, as a beast or as a flood with rage and violence. I've often said that the devil will never launch a full-scale ground attack on you if a lullaby will do the trick. And that's, that's what this is picturing. It, it hasn't been, in my life at least, always a beast or a flood. Sometimes it's just been the right kind of bird seed. Sometimes it's been an attractive decoy that looked to me very much like pleasant company. George Barlow has said that there are three snares that work very well to ensnare people to their detriment, to their death. First is worldliness. Worldliness describes a state where I'm enticed to treasure approval and things more than my Savior. Secondly is selfishness. Selfishness is an insistence on having my way and getting what I want. And lastly is unbelief, where I elevate my opinions, my feelings, my demands above the revealed truth of God. And because, don't, don't, don't uh, you know, misunderstand me and think I'm up here saying the devil made me do it. No, 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 no. Because I have the word of God. I have access to the word of God. I am responsible for avoiding these snares. Can we all agree on that? I'm responsible. But here's the scary truth, the reality. Just like you, just like every other person, I have a very checkered past of not avoiding snares, but stepping right into them. Is there anybody that can relate to me? Or am I the only rotten sinner here in the house? I fall into these snares. If it were not for the grace of God, I would have long ago been destroyed. And, and many around us, we see it all the time, many do die spiritually and even physically at times because of these things. But because God has called me to eternal life, because he loves me, though I was just a silly, stupid bird, flapping, hopelessly flapping my wings under the net of this world, under the net of my own desires, under the net of my own opinions, he came along, an amazing grace that we just sang about, he broke the snare wide open, and I escaped. I escaped the snare of the fowler. I wasn't there because of God's fault. I wasn't there because of the devil's fault. I was there because of my fault. But I am not free because of myself. I am free because of God. I am free because he overpowered the snare and snapped it wide open. I was powerless, but the snare was no match for my matchless God. Romans 5, for while we were still weak, not when we were strong and you know memorized all our scriptures and said all our Bible verses, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, hopelessly flapping our wings under the net, Christ died for us. So look at your life today. Have you been set free from the jaws of sin and death? Have you been plucked from the flood? Have you been rescued from the snare of the fowler? If you can answer in the affirmative, then remember, remember those saving moments are God's promise to you that he is at your side, that he is on your side, and he is by your side. If you're a believer, and if you're in any trouble now, no matter what kind of trouble it is, if you're in any trouble now, whether it's from external oppression or the internal snares of indwelling sin, take heart. The God that has delivered you before has not changed and he will do it again. If you are not a believer, don't be fooled if things are going pretty well right now. You will eventually be devoured. The flood will someday overwhelm you, sweep you off your feet and carry you away. The snare will be cast over you with none to save. Your only hope is submitting to Christ Jesus in hope, crying out to him for rescue, salvation and deliverance and hiding away in him. Our text concludes with an almost verbatim repeat of Psalm 121:2. Our help is in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It says in, um, uh, in verse 8 of Psalm 124, it says, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And it occurred to me as I was studying for this message, it occurred to me that David wrote this psalm. Now let that sink in. Think about everything we've said so far this morning. David wrote this psalm. David, the giant slayer. David, about whom the women of Jerusalem sang, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. This guy was bad, okay? He was serious force of nature to be dealt with. No doubt, David was a strong and fearless warrior. But he begins this hymn with these words. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, if it had not let all of Israel say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, what is he saying? He's smart enough to recognize that it wasn't his strength. It wasn't his sword. It wasn't his shield that brought victories. It was the Lord, his God. He needed God's strength. He needed God's sword. He needed God's shield. And so do you. If David, the great king of Israel, paused to consider his great need, paused to worship God in remembrance of what God had done to rescue and deliver him time and time again, shouldn't we? Wouldn't that be a great thing to do? Our help is in the name of the Lord, the one who made heaven and earth. Jeremiah said, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. And here's the promise. Nothing is too hard for you. 
You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. The Bible tells us that the Lord has made his arm bare. I've always explained that scripture by saying, it's saying this. When, when my children were little, now, listen, I have no illusions or delusions about who I am. I am I'm no athlete. I'm no strong guy. But you know how little boys are. When little boys say, Dad, can we feel your muscle? And of course, I'm, oh yeah, boys, there you go. Good, grab a hold of that boulder under there, you know. And, and, um, and there is nothing that, that God loves as a father more than when his children say, hey, can I feel your muscle? And the, Lord, and the Bible says that the Lord has made his arm bare on behalf of his children. He has shown the strength of his arm for his children. So no matter where you are, if you will, if you will stand on the foundation of faith, God will rescue you. Because think of all the times he's done it before. And if you are not a believer in Christ, you have no such hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we've spent in your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you that you are the God that has delivered us from the jaws of the beast, the raging waters of the flood, the snare of the fowler. Lord, you have rescued us from all of our enemies. God, you have rescued us time and time again. And Lord, whether we are in a time of peace or a time of war, we thank you that your your great power is still available to us and that your promises have never failed. And Lord, you have rescued us already so mightily by the cross and we can trust you for all of the rescue that we need. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand with me and extend your hands in a receiving position. I want to give you, those of you that have been uh, with me as I've been in ministry in this place for several years, you've you've heard me say this scripture so many times and I couldn't think of a better one to give you as a benediction for this service. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, you are dismissed. Amen.